So today we come to arguably one of the more difficult concepts in the entire Bible and come to a passage that I have been grappling through and working through for, I would argue, my whole entire walk with the Lord. This is um, something I'm fairly sure at first glance, we all say, yeah, we're saved by grace, not by works. And everybody that is really saved says, amen to that, correct? But no matter how you look at it, there are going to be some really interesting uh, issues that are brought up in this passage that are going to challenge all of us. Things like, am I supposed to keep the law or not? What role does the Ten Commandments play in my salvation. What role does the Mosaic law play in my salvation? Are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? Are some of you here today because you think that this is God's new Sabbath and you are trying to keep the law by being here? Are you here because you are required to be here? Are you here to follow and obey God? Are all these questions starting to pile up in your mind? You're starting to ask, wait a second, why am I here? <laughs> and then you come to a passage like this and you say, oh my, this is, uh, for lack of a better term, Pandora's box. We are going to look at in the next couple weeks. What I would ask for you to do is as we go through Acts 15, I'd like for you to make uh, a special uh, uh, for lack of a better term, another one, dispensation for the next month, and that is this. I'd like for you to read for your quiet time, or at least attempt to, or think about, using Galatians as your reading for the next month. I want you to be thinking on Galatians over and over and over, because Paul does and explains some of these things in Galatians much better than I will. At the same time, when I get to the end of Acts 15, or at least to the end of verse 29, I might go work on Galatians for a while. We might go take a break and go spend some time on Galatians. If I feel like I haven't answered the question long enough, we might go over and work through that book a little bit. So y'all be praying for your pastor, okay? I want to rightly divide the word of truth, and I, would, I want us to walk understanding God's word and understanding the role that the law has in our lives. Victory after victory after victory. Everywhere the missionaries went, there were victories. More and more people were coming to faith in Jesus. The church was growing. People were being saved, both Jews and Gentiles. Great numbers, even of the pagan Gentiles, were repenting and embracing the Messiah. For thousands of years, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles to cause Gentiles to come to Christ or come to God. And that hadn't happened. And all of a sudden, they're all coming. Everywhere they go, thousands were being added. Gentiles were coming to Christ. The whole world was being turned upside down. 
That's what we see in Acts. Notice in Acts 14, 27. When they had arrived back at Antioch and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The first missionary journey ends and the news is good. God is saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Friends, if you were reading Acts for the first time, you would have thought the world is coming to Christ. What a great book. I can't wait to read the next page. Let's go see some more. If we knew and we were reading Acts for the first time, we'd be thinking, man, it just gets better and better and better. More people are getting saved. More people are getting saved. But just as things are starting to get remarkably great, a huge trial was on the horizon. This is so typical of how things often unfold in the Christian life. Success or victories are often followed by trials and tribulations and conflicts. God uses these trials to test the validity of our faith. As Peter, 1 Peter 1, 6-7 states, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church of Acts 15 is at one of those necessary testing moments. It's time for a shaking. Beloved, after a harvest, the wheat is threshed. The wheat is beaten on the threshing floor. This helps to separate the wheat from the chaff. The same is true with the church. Often after periods of growth, these are trials that arise to reveal the authenticity of the conversions and additions to the church. This is very true of the early church, and it is true of this church too. You can see these cycles repeating over and over through the book of Acts. A harvest, persecution or trial comes, separation occurs, perseverance is revealed in the authentic believers, but the false believers go away. We see this cycle over and over and over throughout the history of the church, don't we? We see it. Fruit, trials, separation, verification, exit some to the left. Isn't that the way it goes? We see this cycle repeated in 1 Peter 1 and 2. We see it in Corinthians, in 1 and 2 Corinthians. We see it in Hebrews. We see it in 1 John. Remember 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. Why did this happen? So that it would be shown that they were not of us. That's why it happened. Today we see a major test arises in the early church. And after the first missionary journey had produced a great harvest of souls, the trial arises within the body of Christ. The trial does not come from outside like we had seen in the missionary journey. It's within the church. The, tri the trial comes in the form of a 
doctrinal crisis within the body of Christ. This same doctrinal crisis is and has been a major issue for the universal body of Christ on and off for some 1,900 plus years. Do you understand that the argument and the difficulty that they have in Acts 15 has been repeated in the church ever since Acts 15? We're still fighting that same battle right now. Do you understand that? Evangelicalism right now is dealing with the same exact issues that Acts 15 is talking about right now. In fact, the, in fact, the doctrine, uh, doctrinal issue has just kind of been remasked, or it looks, this, it's the same doctrinal problem, but it just has a different mask on it. Today it's called the new perspective on Paul. Do you understand that? It's the same thing. By the way, there is no new perspective on Paul. Chuck it. Anything like that, that is garbage. This false doctrine is just another example of false teaching showing up in the church again. Interestingly, some of the top respected scholars today have embraced this false teaching. Some of you may have heard of them. N.T. Wright. Garbage. He's a false teacher. Whoa, that's calling somebody out that a lot of evangelicalism loves. J.D. Dunn. E.P. Sanders. These are well-respected scholars in evangelicalism right now. I could also argue that Roman Catholicism is just the same doctrine reworked. And then we see so-called evangelicals saying they should, uh, they should reunite with Catholics like Rick Warren. Beloved, if his purpose was to unite with that, he has a wrong purpose-driven life. It's false teaching. And it's going back to the very problems that they dealt with in Acts 15. Same things. The doctrinal problem originally arose from a complex mixture of social, cultural, and doctrinal issues. And as we make our way through the rest of Acts, we are going to see this problem really never goes away completely. It can be argued that even Paul's final arrest happens because of the dispute as we will see in Acts 21. So, through Acts 15, or though Acts 15 supposedly ends the debate, the false doctrine doesn't die. The reason it fails to die is twofold. First, mankind always seeks to justify itself before God. Period. You get that? Listen, I'll say it again. The reason why this doctrine just doesn't go away is because the heart of man always seeks to justify itself before God. Always. Second, God allows the doctrinal issues to confirm the true believers and expose the false believers. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. God, in His amazing way, in His sovereignty, allows false teachers to arise up into the church. Why? to separate the goats from the sheep, to show whether what is true and what's false. So God in His sovereignty is allowing these things to come up so that He can then just go expose it with His Word, and when He exposes it with His Word, you go, oh, that guy just left. 
Oh, and that lady over there just left. Oh, why are you leaving? Oh, you're not of us. You don't really believe it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You actually think you're something. Beloved, if you are here, if you are here to somehow earn favor with God, you are here for the wrong reason. If you are here obeying even so-called rules that you have established in your mind to earn favor with God, you have missed the boat. And I want you to, I want to warn all of you, even us as believers can fall right back into this same trap of thinking that some kind of value in and of ourselves is why God loves us and accepts us. But as the title of our church or the name of our church states, we are Grace Bible Church. We are a church that is committed to the unmerited favor of God. We understand that we are only saved by grace alone, not by what we do. The doctrinal crisis, in order for us to understand this crisis, we need to try and put ourselves in the shoes of these people. The world is being turned upside down and everyone involved has a mixture of good and bad motives. Some were hanging out on their self-righteousness. Some were hanging on to their long-loved traditions and culture. Oh, we don't do that one. Some were adamantly opposed to the self-righteousness. While others were trying to kill their own self-righteous ways. But even more important... Many had a mixture of thinking at various times in their lives. And that's us, isn't it? At, at any given moment, we can take back and think that it's about us. And it's about what we do. And we can even, in our minds, start to think, well, if I, why are we letting go of this tradition? Because this tradition is really good. It's a good tradition. And then we can be on the other side. Everything needs to be new. <laughs> Everything needs to be fresh and relevant. And that's just as bad because that's just reworked garbage from the past. The fact is, the debate has been repeated numerous times over the last 2,000 years. And arguably, the, the debate rages in every single one of our hearts all the way to glory. <laughs> if you don't think that you struggle with this issue then you are on the verge of being one of those people. If you think legalism is not in my account, I don't do that, I would never do that, you're right on the edge. Because the fact is, we're all there. And we can slide into it at a moment's notice. All you got to do is watch the news for five minutes. And I bet you you're close. We all see it, don't we? Do we not see the sin around us? Constantly. But if we always were just totally focused on our own hearts, we would be miserable too, wouldn't we? So we find ourselves looking out at people around us constantly. Instead of resting in the unchanging, all-loving, adorable Savior. We're there. 
And so this is what was happening there. Until we are out of these bodies of death, we will fight self-justification. I'm convinced of this. Believers and unbelievers. <laughs> unbelievers will be self-justifying till the day they die, <laughs> unless they become a believer. And believers, once they become converted, will fight the tendency to go back to it till the day they die. Today we're going to begin to unfold the role of the law of Moses plays in the life of the new covenant believer. Over the next couple of weeks, it is my prayer that we will all land where the Apostle Paul landed on this issue. Hopefully, we will all affirm together with the Apostle Paul as Galatians 2, 19 to 21 states, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify, nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I pray that's where we all end up at the end of this. My prayer is we will all trust in the grace of God in Christ Jesus alone for our justification and our sanctification. This hope is clearly explained in Acts 15. So let's dive in. You ready to go? Today we're going to begin to unfold the role of the law of Moses plays in the life of the new covenant believer. Acts 15 breaks down into five sections. First, the conflict. Second, the consideration. Third, the confirmation. Fourth, the conclusion. And fifth, the counsel. Oh boy. He's even alliterating. Scary, isn't it? Let's start with the conflict. Notice in your Bibles again in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Conflict almost always has its antagonists. This conflict is no different. We see them in verse 1, and then they're repeated again in verse 5. The antagonists, notice, some of the men, some of the men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This group of men were most likely the beginning of a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers. In this case, they were probably unsaved men who were trying to solve the law of Moses' dilemma 
by imposing the law on Gentile converts. They concluded that obedience to the law of Moses was required for someone to be saved. Notice it states, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I don't want to go into too great a detail, but this is obviously circumcision was started with Abraham, remember? And then after that, it is repeated in the law. In Leviticus, it's told that they are supposed to circumcise. So it is a fact that this is a part of the law of Moses. They said a person was unable to be delivered from God's judgment without being circumcised. They had to be circumcised. This ultimately had two major problems with it. First, it made works a prerequisite for salvation. Clean yourself up, then you can be saved. Second, it imposed a requirement of the old covenant upon the new covenant age. And I'm not going to be able to develop this completely, and y'all are going to have to take some of these phrases that I say and realize I might not be able to explain them for a couple weeks, but I'm going to throw it out there. The fact of the matter is, is that they were imposing old covenant commands on new covenant believers. Okay? Obviously, as we all know, being declared right with God is not based on anything we do or our parents do. You understand that, right? Does everybody agree with that? If not, Grace Bible is not your church. Or you need to repent. That would be better. We are not saved by what we do. That includes circumcision. This is obviously stated by numerous New Testament books. Especially, if you want to mark this down, you can read Romans 2 and 4 this week, and then Galatians. Again, reading those two will pretty much put a nail in the coffin. But again, these books, those two books, Romans and Galatians, had not been written by the time Acts 15 was going on. So this brought up a great debate. Notice next, we have the defenders of the truth and the conflict in verses 2 to 3. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, I find it very interesting, intriguing in fact, that the Apostle Paul himself could not end this conflict. Do you understand he's the one that wrote Romans 2 and 4 and Galatians? He wrote the end of this and he's debating and had great dissension with these antagonists. This was a conflict that wasn't going to go away easy. Paul, arguably the greatest apologist the church has ever known, could not put his, this argument to death by himself. It's an interesting thought. Paul himself couldn't end the debate? He couldn't win the debate? Well, I think he, he won the debate. He knew the truth. But the fact of the matter is, is what? He kept raging. And notice, the church in Antioch determined to send Paul and Barnabas and others to Jerusalem to consult the apostles and elders. So here you got the apostle Paul and even his own church that had sent him out to go be a missionary says, hey, why don't you go talk to the apostles about this? And the elders. Hmm. 
By the way, it's very possible that one of the others that were sent to Jerusalem was Titus, a Gentile convert that Paul references in Galatians 2. This conflict did not go away with some difficulties and some sacrifice, though. Many were involved in resolving it. This is encouraging to me and also convicting. Are any of you like me? When a conflict or a trial or a difficulty arises with a fellow believer, I just want it over quick. I don't want to get everyone involved. I just want to whip out my Bible and say, Thus says the Lord, and then expect people to do what's right and submit to the truth. Anybody else like that? I just want people, okay, it says it here. What are you arguing with? You're arguing with God. Get over it. But folks, this shows us that conflict is not always resolved with ease. Sometimes it takes patience. matter of fact, always it takes patience and pursuit of the truth to help others. Friends, conflicts often don't end immediately. The difficult circumstances require humble patience to walk with God through the trial. If the church suggested Paul and Barnabas go get counsel from others, how in the world can we think we can figure out all our doctrinal differences by ourselves real quick being a Bible thumper? Anybody else there? Oh, I can handle this problem. I know the law of grace issue. I got it figured out. Ooh, be careful. You might need to go consult with the apostles a little bit more. Now, notice along the way to Jerusalem. Notice the men didn't stop proclaiming the grace of God to the other churches. So, yes... There was humility, but there was also a commitment to the truth. Notice in verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. I love how this conflict didn't destroy the joy in the disciples over what God was doing. I find it interesting. You don't see the Samaritan church explain complaining about the Gentiles getting saved. Do you? You don't hear them saying, Hey, did you circumcise them? The response was very different. I'm convinced when we really understand and rest in the grace of God, we will be compassionate, gracious people. Oh, get this, please. When we are relying upon God's unmerited favor to save us wicked sinners, we will give grace to others and think the best of God's grace in other people. As we go through this passage, I think it's important for us to ask yourself this question. Which of the group of, the peop of people are you most like? <laughs> Who are we most like? Are we like those... Hopefully not the first group that says, they got to do this to get saved. Or are we like those in Phoenicia and Samaria? Samaria, Samaria, Samaria. That when God's grace is on display, we rejoice. Yes! God is doing something great. 
Or are we like those that we're going to see in Jerusalem? That There's always a yes, but. I don't know about you guys, but I'm just being honest here. I find myself all too often being in the yes, but category. Are we being honest? That we're supposed to be known as Grace Bible Church, but we're often saying, yes, but. Yes, but. But friends, it's very important for us to understand. Does this mean that we should totally ignore unrepentant, blatant sin in others? No. But friends, if, if we're seeing sin everywhere, is it possible that we've forgotten just how God, gracious God is with us? If we are constantly noticing sin in others, is it possible we are thinking like, this. I don't have a problem. They should be able to get over that. Folks, we may have a huge log in our eye. There is no way around this. If we are finding it hard to rejoice with even the smallest acts of grace from God, then we are way too fixed on our own worthiness and not resting in God's grace alone. Do you hear me? I want to say it again. I want to get this because I think we all need to focus on this. If we are finding it hard to rejoice with even the smallest acts of God's grace, then we are way too fixed on our own worthiness and not resting in God's grace alone. I don't want to be a yes but person. I want to be a person that loves Christ and rejoices over God's grace working in other people. How about you? Understanding grace pro produces joy over any sign of God's grace in someone else. When we're resting in the unmerited favor of God, we will find joy in even the smallest evidences of God's grace in others. And we will affirm to others, wow, look at God! And then we will also Worship God. The Phoenicians and Samaritan believers rejoiced over the conversion of the Gentiles. While the Jewish professing believers expected the Gentiles to be them and do what they had done. Mm. Is that not convicting? I'm crushed by this. Is anybody else crushed by this? Now notice the conflict only increases when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem. This is literally the breaking point. Verses 4 and 5. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. It's almost the identical phrase, right? It's almost like at this point, you're, if you were writing, you would say, and the whole church rejoiced at what God had done on the first missionary journey. Right? Nope. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Here we see a whole new group of antagonists are in Jerusalem. But this time their argument is a little less blatantly false. They don't say, It is necessary for them to be saved. 
But they do say it's mandatory. It's necessary. The Gentile believer must be circumcised and they must be told to obey the law of Moses. The lack of the word saved does not mean some were not still thinking or teetering on falling into that trap. There is a subtle difference, but I believe at the root of this argument is still the same problem. Was obedience to the law the focus or was trusting in the all-knowing, all-providing, gracious God the focus? Observe how the antagonists are described this time. Notice it says, They were some of the sect of the Pharisees. If I stopped here, we would say, Why, why in the world are Pharisees in the church? We might be tempted to think that, right? Some of us in the room might be thinking, wait a second, isn't that the group of whitewashed tombs that Jesus condemned? What in the world are the Pharisees doing in the church? Those were the ones that thought they were clean. What in the world are they doing here? But notice it says, who had believed? Hmm. Pharisees who had believed? They had committed to Christ. They had trusted Christ. They had seen their own responsibility in killing Christ. They had come to an understanding that they were crushed by the law. They trusted in Jesus. They believed. So these men were literally believers in Jesus who had been Pharisees. It doesn't say who they were. I wonder if this was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know. The fact is, old traditions and old commitments die hard. The reaction this, this makes sense if you'll put yourself in their shoes, though. And this is important. Not that it is right how they respond. But we can understand them if we think about it. The old school Pharisees... We're having a problem reconciling the change. Gentiles were required to come under the law of Moses to be true proselytes for thousands of years previously. That's what happened. When somebody became a believer, a Gentile became a believer, they had to come under the law and they had to do what the law said in the Old Testament. So like many of us, when change comes, we seek to hold on to our tradition even if it doesn't line up with God's Word. We have a hard time letting go of things, don't we? We think in our minds, the church is going to the dogs! But in this case, these old school people were holding on to a bad doctrine. Not a saving doctrine. Not a sanctifying doctrine. I often see this kind of dogmatic resolve over preferences also in our church. That's one thing I absolutely love about a church plant. But it's also almost 10 years. We're coming up on 10 years that we planted the church. We've got some pretty steady traditions that are set up here. Very easy for these things to become hills to die on when they shouldn't be. Got to be careful. Die on doctrine, not on preferences. And... Make sure when you die on doctrine, you're accurately understanding the doctrine, not misunderstanding it.
Again, we must examine our hearts, right? Asking ourselves, why is this such a hardship for us? Why do we see this and, man, I hate this. Why does that guy do that? Why does she do that? Is it possible? Is it possible that we've forgotten grace? Is it possible? However, I have to admit, it seems very sad that the very first thing recorded about Paul's report that all that God had done, they stand up and they give this requirement to the, to the converts. Do you understand what that would be like? That would be like, the missionaries come in, they say, man, we saw God doing great things, saving people. Did you circumcise them? No, I didn't circumcise them. Why not? Are they going to church every Sunday? Did you get them baptized? Before you know it, you're going to start falling into this trap. Do they come three times a week or just two? How about one? Do they like hymns? They don't like those traditional hymns, man. Whoa! Trouble! Can you believe those ladies? Those Gentile ladies, are they wearing their skirts longer now? Do they put their heads up, hair up? How about do they cover their head? Be careful. We'll fall into the same stuff, won't we? Again, these were believers from that sect of Pharisees. But believers who were learning, leaning upon their works after salvation. You think any of us do that? Now, I know, I know what's going through some of y'all's minds right now. Some of y'all in the rumors in. Well, we're not supposed to tell people what to do. There's not any law. There's no commands. Come on. We're going to have anarchy here. Well, you've missed the glory of the new covenant then. Because, see, the new covenant means the Spirit of God indwells the believer. And the law of God is written on their heart. Is it the Mosaic law? Don't think so. We'll talk about that later. But we always should praise God for any evidence of God's grace in people's lives. Amen? Amen. But we see here a conflict has arisen in the church for, from Jerusalem to Antioch and beyond. Yes, obedience to the Lord is an evidence of conversion. But the further we get away from our conversion, the more we forget just how long it took for us to get to where we are. Oh, isn't this true? I was meditating on this just last night, just thinking, wow, this is painfully true. The longer we get away from our conversion, the more we look at ourselves and say, why aren't people like me? I see, I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I go to church every time the doors are open. Why aren't you like me? We expect people to be us. And we forget that it took God's grace working 
for years to get us to that place. And if it was a quicker journey, be on guard, beloved. Because you might have just learned how to clean up the outside of the cup real fast. Why is it we expect grace and rely upon grace, but we're always slow to give grace? I think the answer is, is because we're all too much like these sect of the Pharisee believers. <laughs> we found parts of the Mosaic Law that we just love. and We can do it just really good. We expect everybody to be us. Anybody else in here with me? But notice what happens. Next we see the consideration. The consideration. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, this word, after there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he, did, he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Ooh, this is good, isn't it? Notice the argument. Consider the argument here. The apostles and elders came together to look into this world, this doctrine, doctrinal issue. Again, I'm very encouraged by this. These were the apostles. They were grappling over this issue. By the way, if they grappled over this issue, then obviously it is not something that we can get in one sermon. Take note of that. The role of the law of Moses in the church of the new covenant age is not an easy issue. And by the way, I don't think the answer they answer every question in Acts 15 in their decision. I don't think Acts 15 is all we need to answer this question perfectly. By the way, it's very interesting that, and I'll give you one proof of that. Remember James, and we'll see this next week, hopefully, maybe, that James says to him, don't eat things blood with blood, right? But then the apostle Paul makes a totally different argument in the book of Corinthians, where he says, look, I'm free to eat the... Things sacrificed to idols, because I know that all those idols are not real gods anyway. Here he says, don't do it. And there he says, it's okay to do it. Which one's right? Yes. Yes. And it's about the heart. We'll get to that eventually. But I don't think it, they answer it completely. I think it's a beginning place. I think Galatians comes just a little bit after this, and I think Romans comes after that. And I think as you build the argument and you see the whole picture, you start seeing it. You start getting it. And I don't think we're all going to get that in just a couple of weeks here at Grace Bible Church. You understand that? So it's going to take some work. Another part of this meeting that intrigues me is the lack of mention of God's direct revelation on the subject. If there was one time that you could just, they could give this and then God would just go, 
will you just stop and listen to me? I'll give you the explanation of this. Dot, 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 dot. It doesn't happen that way, does it? They get in the room, the apostles, the ones that had been with Jesus, and they discuss it and debate about it. And it's difficult. Why didn't God just say what the solution was? And why didn't he just dictate it? Answer, because, again, all of these conflicts arise in the church in order to what? Help to separate the wheat from the chaff. And often, listen closely, discussions and debates are the way to reveal your heart. <laughs> and boy, does that go to marriages, doesn't it? You want to know what your wife's like? Get into an argument with her. Not intentionally, but when you're in there, you'll see what we're really like, don't we? We'll see what we really value and who's really right in our own eyes. We don't defend God. Often we defend ourselves. But notice, after much debate. What? Much debate? Now I have to tell you, this is one of those I just don't completely get. By the way, I don't necessarily think we should argue about these things because they did. I think in some ways God was working despite their foolishness. I want you to understand this. I think it was clear they just muddled it in their minds. I think our hearts muddle this issue a lot. And he was working through these less than perfect men. I had to laugh. <laughs> You've got to love this. Man, I'm never going to get through this sermon. <laughs> I had to laugh when I did a word search of the word debate <laughs> in the New Testament. And I found another use of it by the Apostle Paul later in his ministry. Titus 3.9. Listen to this verse. But avoid, <laughs> um, it, it's killing me. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. <laughs> it's the same word, disputes, debates. It's the same word used in Acts 15. He'd, he'd had, he's gone on that merry-go-round. He was like, I've been there. I don't need any more of this foolishness. <laughs> and yet, somehow somebody thinks that Catholics and evangelicals could, should get together? Are you kidding me? I don't want to get on that merry-go-round again. Do y'all... I don't want to die trying to work my way to God. How about you? I'm almost convinced that Paul had had enough of arguing over the law by the time he writes Titus. However, again, we see this common theme in the Bible. Man blows it, but God. Man blows it, but God. God's grace is now displayed in Peter as he steps up and calls everyone to consider the truth. Well, I had hoped to get through. <laughs> I had hoped to get through the sermon. Is this making sense? Are y'all getting it? Okay, oh, when I say that, I want you, I do want to clarify one thing. When I say that, I, I struggle. One of my biggest struggles is, is that 
I hope I'm explaining it clearly. My, my, if I do nothing else, I pray that when you walk away from the passage, you say, oh, I understand what the passage means. I don't know if it's, but I can't control whether or not you embrace it or not. Do you understand? But I just want to make sure I'm clear, okay? So when I ask that question, I'm just asking that question because I really want to make sure you understood what I said. And if there's something I explained wrong, will you do me a favor? Don't be afraid to say, I don't really get that one. Or send me an email. Ask me a question. Why? Because I want to help you. It's my job to explain the text. And if you don't know what it means, don't understand it, then I blew it. I got to be man enough to say, I need to get better. Okay? All right. That was fun. Let's pray. Father, you are kind and gracious to us. Lord, your, your law, who you are, that it reveals who you are, is good. And at the same time, Lord, it is crushing. And Father, when we recognize our own propensity to exalt ourselves, we are crushed by even that truth. And we find our way back to the cross. We find our way back to Christ who came to die for sinners such as I. Oh God, please, if there's someone in here that's trusting in their own goodness to get them to you, show them your glory. Show them the glory of Christ who came to die to pay for sin. And let, him, let them embrace you. Oh, Spirit, work in the heart, indwell them, show them that you are the all-satisfying, all-knowing, all-providing, glorious, gracious God that you are. We need you, Father. We trust you, God. Oh, please, God, help us to apply this message in our life this week. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory.